This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 20 of the Ned Ryan Podcast. I want to talk a little bit about my book today, Restoring Our Republic. Uh, it came out December of last year, and really was my whole goal in writing it was to really have a primer on the founding of our republic, where our founders got their inspiration, how they constructed the machinery of the republic, how it's supposed to work, and how far we've drifted from it, because I know it's not being taught in schools, right? We're not teaching real history. In fact, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, shockingly horrifying you know, developments where you have the 1619 Project, which is a work of fiction written by a fabulist, is now being taught in, I believe, 3,500 schools. Now you're seeing Black Lives Matter curriculum being inserted into schools. They're not teaching real history. And again, I know I've mentioned this, schools are rapidly uh, accelerating towards, although they've been doing this for decades, becoming full-on indoctrination centers, not places of learning. So my whole goal in writing the book was for people, again, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, who weren't taught this in schools to be able to read something, it's under 300 pages, just under 300 page book, and be able to have a good grasp of who we are and why it's worth fighting for. Because I, I really, and I lay this out in the beginning part of the book, if we don't know, if we truly don't know what we're fighting for, that's a problem. And so I wanted people to understand, here's what we're fighting for. In the face of this very aggressive socialism in the face of this globalist ruling party, administrative state governing philosophy, those that are pushing unlimited immigration to rapidly change this country into a creature of their own creation. We have to know what we're fighting for. So that's why the book. So I thought I'd just go through and I would encourage you, you can find it at Amazon, got the printed, uh, the book, printed copy, I've got a Kindle copy. Amazon has been sitting on the audio version for several months now. Uh, my hope is that it will come out this fall. So if you're not into reading books, be on the lookout for the audio version of Restoring Our Public. But I thought I'd just take this podcast and do a very quick, concise overview of the book. So, you know, I start out in chapter one and saying greatness is a choice and that our American Republic is truly a singular nation, the likes of which has never been seen before. History has seen and experienced aspects of this republic from the time of the ancient Hebrews and Greeks to the Romans and the English. Some of traditions, practices, and beliefs drawn from those civilizations, the lessons learned, all informed what this nation would become. These various threads of the rule of law and separation of powers and the proper relation between the state and man were all drawn together to form the fabric of a new society and nation. But there has never been a nation like this republic in the history of the world. And that's, this, I, I say this and I will repeat it again and again. The American Republic is the pinnacle of Western civilization. And I'm not saying that, although it will trigger the left, I'm saying that as a statement of fact. When you consider the various threads from Jerusalem and London and Rome and Athens, all of the various threads that our founders drew upon the best of all these different aspects to construct the American Republic. And it has stood the test of time. And I think this is obviously this election this year is yet it is a major test of do we actually still believe in our constitutional republic or are we going to surrender to this socialism? 
uh, that is being pushed. That is, that is not an aspect of the Democrat Party. It is the Democratic Party. The point I make, too, when I talk about restoring a republic is that the founders got one thing very, very right, human nature. And this is why I tell people all the time, you know, this is why you read Shakespeare. This is why you read the Bible, because the more times change, the more they stay the same in regards to human nature. Whereas the founders were optimistic realists, the progressives were utopian statists, deeply naive about human nature and the dangers of concentrated power. They mistakenly sought utopia in a fallen world, then compounded that mistake by concentrating tremendous power in the hands of a relatively few, deeply imperfect human beings. In their minds, human nature was not inherently evil, but was perfectible. Unelected, educated elites were to fill the envisioned administrative state, separated from politics and elected officials and the accountability of the people's representatives. The walls separating the powers of government were knocked down and power consolidated to advance progress. That was the mistake progressives made, right? They concentrated power into the hands of imperfect human beings, and the founders understood that even though we're capable of great good as human beings, we're incapable of sustained good, right? We're imperfect beings in an imperfect world. And so they knew this, and they knew that we were also given God-given rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. In fact, so many inherent natural transcendent rights, it's hard to actually enumerate all of them. But understanding imperfect human nature, understanding God-given rights, how do you actually allow human beings to be able to pursue and fulfill and their God-given rights at the same time not allowing power to come into their hands uh, in a concentrated way? So that's the diffusion of power. And that's what they did right. They realized that For us to be able to truly accomplish all that we were created to be, you have to create the the, uh, most most freedom within the the ordered bounds of liberty, is is a way to put it. And so, therefore, the diffusion of power, right? So, you have this freest space possible to create ordered liberty at the same time, diffuse power. Therefore, the separation of the branches, federal legislative, uh, sorry, executive, legislative, judicial, and then the diffusion of power down to the local level with federalism. But progressives rejected that. It, they, the progressives, and if you read Woodrow Wilson and the others, they're very honest about it. They found the original intent of the founders, the founders' constitution, deeply frustrating because they wanted to concentrate power to rapidly accomplish their progress. So in rapid succession, Progressives would pass four constitutional amendments between 1912 and 1920, the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th, while launching the Federal Reserve, the Federal Trade Commission, and numerous other agencies and government initiatives. It was a triumph of statism, the quaint notions of limited government and separation of powers, nothing but tired old ideas, propounded by wig-wearing, benighted men of the 18th century. We are not bound to adherence to the doctrines held by the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We are as free as they are to make and unmake governments. We are not here to worship men or a document, Woodrow Wilson declared. So the first wave of progressives would eventually give rise to a second with Franklin Roosevelt, then a third with London Johnson. By the 200th anniversary of the birth of the Republic, I truly believe this. The founders would have found the government the progressives formed far different than the one they had envisioned. Right? The state had displaced the individual as the central focus of the nation. 
the size of government, but more importantly, the scope of government, was now invasive and overbearing, far above and beyond the powers the founders had ever deemed possible or desirable for a people to remain free. So, you know, I talk about in chapter one, the, the, I juxtapose the founders versus progressives, founders vision, understanding human nature, progressives rejecting that worldview, rejecting the founders understanding of human nature, creation of the administrative state, and the birth of it, right in the early 1900s, the birth of the administrative state, which is truly the foundation of the swamp. If you want to think about how do you drain the swamp, again, President Trump's famous line during 2016, and still he uses it, time to drain, let's, we've got to drain the swamp, drain the swamp. Well, the foundation of the swamp is the administrative state. You break the state, you drain the swamp. And this is something that I hope President Trump, when he gets reelected in November, will do. And over the course of four years, if he could shrink it by 10% a year, for an overall reduction of more than 40%, that would be fantastic. That would give us a chance to drain the swamp, break the state, get government back into its proper size and role and scope. So in chapter four, uh, I, I deal with a self-governing people, right? The birth of American society. And start by, you know, everywhere on the continent of Europe at the beginning of the 17th century, absolute royalty was triumphing over the debris of the oligarchic and feudal freedom of the Middle Ages, wrote Alexis de Tocqueville. In the heart of that brilliant and literary Europe, the idea of rights had perhaps never been more completely misunderstood. Never had notions of true freedom less preoccupied minds, and it was then that these same principles were being proclaimed in the wilderness of the New World and were becoming the future creed of a great people. So I work through, again, this very unique beginning of American society and how the, you know, the early colonists coming in the early 1600s and for the course of really the next 150, 60 years before the American Revolution truly put in place a self-governing uh, approach to how they operated and, and that's the thing that, that needs to be emphasized when you deal with the American Revolution. These were a self-governing people. Yes, they were English subjects. Yes, they were part of the British Empire. But they had created thousands of miles away from London a self-governing uh, approach to government. And then all of the sudden, post-French and Indian War, the English government comes in and, again, taxes – trying to, to fund their losses, the British government's losses from the French and Indian War, et cetera, et cetera. But because Anglo-Americans refused to acknowledge class or social status, no man was inherently beholden to another. Individuals could do as they pleased and were therefore free to voluntarily associate with those who thought as they did. The wilderness lay wide open before them. Uninhibited, such independence might have endangered America's embryonic freedom, after all, an individual who disdains all social ties will most likely take little interest in the community. Caring only for his own condition, such a man makes himself ripe for slavery. If a tyrant, for example, can convince the individual that he will provide for his needs, he can easily exert control over the deluded man's minds and actions. But 
what they were able to do is, again, this whole concept of voluntary association. And, and that's, you know, when you, when you think about, and I'll, I deal with this in the, the chapter about rights, that people enter into just, self, a self-governing people enter into just associations for a variety of reasons, but, but the first being the protection of property. I mean, John Locke, you look at John Locke, the great British political philosopher of the 1600s, he felt the number one reason for a self-governing government to exist was the protection of private property. But people enter into these just and voluntary associations because they have the same views and understand that if they come into these associations, sure, there's a sacrifice they're not going to have complete and full uh, individualism at the same time. They're sacrificing some of these rights so they can experience even more, so they can protect rights, so they can protect their property, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what the American people were doing in the 150, 160 years before the American Revolution. And they had formed a very robust form of self-governance. And then the British stepped in and said, no, we're going to tax you without representation. And they said, we don't think so. Alexis de Tocqueville on the American man, all is primitive and savage around him. But he is the result of 18 centuries of work and experience. Again, pinnacle of Western civilization, American society, American republic. He knows the past, is curious about the future, argues about the present. He is a very civilized man who, for a time, submits to living in the middle of the woods and who plunges in into the wilderness of the new world with his Bible, a hatchet, and newspapers. So I move through to discussing uh, the Constitutional Convention. At one point in the past, sadly, some of it, a lot of it's been lost because of a switch in servers. But if you can find them, please let me know. I did a 31-part series on the history of the Constitutional Convention and covered in great detail all of the constitutional debates that took place in Philadelphia that summer of 1787. So again, having that knowledge base, I wanted to incorporate some of that into Restoring Our Republic and discuss some of those key debates and the construction of the Constitution, but more importantly, the machinery of the Republic and and how our founders in a very intentional way with very robust debates that sometimes thinking the Constitutional Convention was going to fall apart because compromises couldn't be reached. Of course, it's reached. They finally sign in September of 1787 and then go into the ratification battles. But So I, I deal with that in some of these chapters. And then in Chapter 8, I deal with Consti- the Constitution and the American citizen and say the delegates who gathered at the Constitutional Convention knew that in great civilizations of the past, people had constructed their governments according to the needs of the state rather than the needs of the people themselves. Such designs were often secular manifestations of a given culture's religion. In ancient Rome, for example, the supremacy of the state reflected the people's pantheistic or pagan beliefs. The government or state was thought to be a quasi-divine mediator between the people and the gods, and as such required the obedience and devotion of its subjects. Let me deconstruct that a little bit. Back in the day, In Rome, again, the state is the mediator between the people and the gods. Therefore, man serves the state, not state serves the man, because it is the great mediator between all of the gods. And therefore, the state required the obedience and devotion of its subjects. In the imperial age, some Roman emperors even demanded to be worshipped as gods themselves. 
Because the state had authority to interpret divine favor or displeasure, citizens were compelled to serve the government for their own good. In this type of society, the individual was always defined by his relationship to the state. Man was for the state. The state was not for the man. And I would remind people, I said this on one of my more recent hits on Tucker Carlson. In a constitutional republic such as ours, all power flows from the people. Man is above the state, right? Power flows from the people to their elected representatives who they make the stewards and entrust them with their to protect and put in place a government that it protects and advances inherent natural rights. And they are also made stewards of the people's monies to therefore put in place this government that will protect and advance all of the people's rights and take none of them away. And that's, that's, we've lost sight of this. Again, all power flowing from the people, the purpose of our elected representatives, the purpose of our government is to serve the needs of the people. And it's not the reverse. And in some ways, it really feels like this has all been flipped. And I've even said this, it, it feels like we are entering, you know, an imperial age where, you know, man is for the state. We, we serve the state right? With our taxes, our unbelievable tax burden, a lot of life's choices and decisions being taken away from us where the state tells us what to do on a whole wide variety of fronts, even if it's based on bogus pseudoscience as we are in this coronavirus pandemic. And this is, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous worldview. We have to go back and understand that's not what was intended. In America, the situation was radically different. In addition to their Judeo-Christian heritage, which could never countenance worship of the state. The people of the founding generation had inherited from their Puritan forefathers a strong sense of mission. They believed that they were a people called of God to establish a righteous and free nation on earth. The American individual was to be defined not by his relationship to the state, but by his relationship to God. Man needed no earthly mediator, for Christ had already provided direct access to the Father. God had created man in his image. Therefore, every individual has intrinsic value and worth. Complete shift, again, from previous forms of government. Again, we drew various threads that we thought were beneficial, the founders thought were beneficial from London and Jerusalem and Rome and Athens. At the same time, this whole perspective on the state and man and that proper relationship, completely different, especially from imperial Rome. So in the anxious, anxious yet productive months that followed the signing of the Constitution as state conventions deliberated over the new plan, the people gradually came to see the wisdom, not only of the Constitution, but also of the method of its ratification. By design, ratification conventions were temporary bodies, consolidating the people's authority for the specific purpose of considering the Constitution. After their decisions were made, the conventions would dissolve. Thus, in the future, no official or legislative body would be able to challenge the established constitution. The people had made their choice, and only they could alter it. So the process of ratification lasted nearly two and a half years. The delegates from the convention, especially those who had supported the Virginia plan, lobbied vigorously in their home states for the acceptance of the constitution. So in December of 1787, Delaware became the first state to ratify the constitution, earning itself the nickname the First State. Pennsylvania and New Jersey also ratified in December of 1787, 
followed by Georgia and Connecticut in January of 1788. So I, I discussed this whole, the ratification battles, because it really was something where there was no guarantee after they signed the Constitution in Philadelphia in September of 1787 that this was actually going to be ratified by the nine states necessary to make it a reality to then launch a constitutional republic. So I discuss a little bit of this and some of the the thinking behind the ratification process, the ratification battles, and I, I delve into a little bit, especially in Virginia, because Virginia and New York had very strong anti-federalist um, constituencies, they, and they had very powerful voices. Patrick Henry led the anti-federalist forces in Virginia, and so Virginia had hoped for the honor of being the ninth and final state needed for the ratification of the Constitution. However, four days before, New Hampshire had ratified the Constitution, therefore becoming the ninth and final state needed. The ratification in Virginia caused the anti-federalist resistance in New York to collapse, though the Constitution would be approved by only three votes. And one month after Virginia ratified, New York followed suit. North Carolina did not ratify until the next year on November 21st, 1789. And eventually even Rhode Island, who I would point out, as I'd point out in the book, was known as Rogue Island. I mean, that Ro- Rhode Island didn't even send delegates to the Constitutional Convention. The state legislators, especially in regards to uh, currency manipulation, it was, it was a mess and was known by the nickname Rogue Island. We're not going to take part in this. We're not going to send delegates. In fact, during the ratification process, even though they hadn't sent delegates, there was still a ratification process in Rhode Island. It was overwhelmingly defeated. I mean, not even close. So Rhode Island's like, we're not going to be part of this. We're not going to be part of your constitutional republic. Well, it happened that as we put in place, obviously, the the, pre- the presidency and the, the House and the Senate that we, the Senate, I believe, voted to cut off all commercial interaction with Rhode Island unless they actually would ratify the Constitution and join the Union. And so eventually even Rhode Island uh, was persuaded that being outside of the Union all by itself, the little Rhode Island, uh, realized it wasn't in his best interest, and it ratified May 29th, 1790, but I think, if I remember correctly, only by a couple votes. I mean, still... Even though they, they, there were a significant percentage of the people of Rhode Island that thought they were going to row it alone in the great big bad world with a constitutional republic on one side and then England and France and Spain on the other. But uh, this is I, – I will say this in a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. This is the approach, especially on the slave debates, that Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman and some of these other delegates should have taken – Georgia and South Carolina did not really have the option of being outside of the Union. They needed it for self-preservation, right? They only represented, I believe, between the two of the 5% of the entire population of America at the time. In the South, Georgia was being pressed hard by the Spanish in Florida, by the Creek Indians. They really, for self-preservation, would have needed to join the Union to survive, or they would have had to confront Spain, especially Georgia, Spain and the Creeks by themselves, and South Carolina would have also been a very tenuous position. This is why I think this is one of the great mistakes. They, they made the calculation, well, slavery is going to die of its own accord. 
you know, we don't need to blow up the potential union of all 13 states, albeit the fact that Rhode Island didn't even send delegates. I think they should have taken that same stance. You either join the union or we will cut off all commercial interaction with you. You have no choice. You will end the practice of slavery. This is, again, armchair quarterbacking, hindsight being 2020. Too bad they didn't take that approach because less than 100 years later, we would pay for that mistake with the death of over 600 and some thousand Americans during our bloody civil war. So chapter 13, I deal with the transformation of the concept of rights. You know, in in chapter nine, really quick, I deal with enumerated rights. And this was a big debate between George Mason, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. Do you actually want to have an enumerated Bill of Rights? And Hamilton and Madison said, no, we don't, which today we're like, why, why wouldn't you want a Bill of Rights? That's crazy. No, it's not. They truly believed that in the construction of the machinery of the Republic, remember, as I said earlier, the whole idea of them constructing the machinery of the Republic in the way that they did was the diffusion of power. And if you followed the handbook, the manual of the original intent of the founders, power would be so diffused in this, this constitutional Republic that power could not be concentrated enough to abuse and take away the natural transcendent rights of the American people. So Hamilton, his great concern was if we have an enumerated Bill of Rights, we won't be able to enumerate all of the natural rights that every created human being is entitled to. And George Mason said, I don't think so. We're creating a powerful new federal government. I want an enumerated Bill of Rights to at least list out you know, the rights that, that cannot in any way ever be taken away from the American people. So this was, this was really one of the great compromises during the ratification battles where the anti-federalists said, you know, eventually when they realized, you know, we're probably going to lose this, but we will continue fighting unless you actually put a Bill of Rights uh, into the Constitution. And that's what happened. So that was, this was one of the great compromises during the ratification battles. The Federalists, again, led by Hamilton and Madison and others, said we will have, as soon as the first Congress comes into session, and James Madison was actually in charge of the process, taking all of these ideas submitted by the various states, we will take all of these ideas about an enumerated Bill of Rights and drawing from history, and I deal with this, again, from British history and all the, the various, uh, you know, enumerated you know, lists of rights from, from previous history. Take all these things together. We're going to put them into a list. Madison called them down. They finally voted on 12 that they approved, uh, was, was sent th- then by President Washington to the various states. Ten were ratified, ergo, our Bill of Rights. But I would encourage you. I mean, again, I would encourage you to read the whole book, but really look at chapter nine about the enumerated Bill of Rights. So, Chapter 13 is the transformation of the concept of rights. And then in chapter 13, I deal with the transformation of the concept of rights. And this is, again, another major shift between progressives and the founders. So not long after the 14th Amendment was passed, some began to argue that the amendment made the Bill of Rights applicable to the states, a doctrine that would become known as incorporation. In 1873, for example, the Supreme Court heard the slaughterhouse cases in which a guild of butchers in New Orleans protested against a local slaughterhouse corporation that had been granted a monopoly by the state. The butchers argued that the state was violating the Fifth Amendment by depriving them of their property without due process of law. 
They grounded their argument on the basis that the 14th Amendment prohibited a state from abridging the privileges and immunities of its citizens. Supreme Court rejected this argument, responding that the Bill of Rights was intended to limit the federal government from interfering with state law. Despite this resolution, the court began to soften its position over the years as attorneys persisted in bringing similar arguments before the bench. In 1965, the Supreme Court heard Griswold v. Connecticut, a case regarding a Connecticut state law that prohibited medical practitioners from recommending or providing contraceptives to their patients. The law had been challenged by the state chapter of Planned Parenthood, which, if you know the history of Margaret Sanger, is a deeply racist uh, or founded by a racist and someone who believed deeply in eugenics, an organization which I firmly believe has practiced nothing less than systematic genocide against the African-American community in this country. So Planned Parenthood insisted this statute was unconstitutional. In a vote of 7-2, to two, the justices ruled the Connecticut law violated citizens' right to privacy. The court argued that this right, though nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, is, is suggested, suggested by the 1st, 3rd, 5th, and 9th Amendments and is therefore protected under the 14th. This legal invention not only paved the way for the full incorporation of the Bill of Rights, but also set a very notorious precedent for other controversial cases, including Roe v. Wade, which took place about eight years later. So as the progressive mindset began to permeate American society, the general public became more and more comfortable seeing the federal government as a guardian who could solve all social ills. And if the federal government was going to solve all social ills, it had to be well-endowed, had to be a well-endowed, well-oiled machine. People began to see bureaucracy as a sign of health and efficiency. The more bureaucracy, the healthier the society. Politicians who stood to benefit from a powerful centralized government encouraged this line of thinking. Wilson's election and administration, which was between 1913 and 1921, reflected a fundamental change in popular thought. And historian Paul Johnson describes this change, referring to Wilson's presidency as one of the great watersheds of American history. Until this time, America had concentrated almost exclusively on developing its immense natural resources by means of a self-creating and self-recruiting meritocracy. Americans enjoyed a laissez-faire society, which was by no means unrestrained, but whose limitations to their economic freedom were imposed by their belief in God-ordained moral codes rather than a government devised by man. But gradually, the progressive intelligentsia began to see a strong federal government with wide powers of intervention as the defender of the ordinary man and woman against the excesses of corporate power. Made this point also on Tucker that, you know, you look at the robber barons, and I say that in air quotes because we can quibble about if that's a fair, you know, uh, definition, name for these folks in the late 1800s, but unrestrained, capitalism unrestrained by a moral, ethical, Judeo-Christian code, when it is out of control in excess, moves into obviously corporatism, crony capitalism, all of these things, these excesses of the quote-unquote robber barons in the late 1800s, guess what the reaction was? Progressivism. 
And so that's why I think the Republicans of today have to be very careful about the vulture capitalists, the corporatism that wants to sink its claws into the Republican Party. And this is the great fight, I think, truly the next fight. After Trump gets reelected, who controls the Republican Party? What is the governing vision? Is it America first or is it corporatism? And devastating response to corporatism in the late 1800s, early 1900s was progressivism, which launched the administrative state, which I I truly believe is, is one of the greatest threats to individual freedom. So while progressives have been content for the government to regulate market activity, Roosevelt enacted policies to artificially simulate market growth. He appointed dozens of new boards and agencies to oversee existing industries and to supervise new ones. Under his leadership, government began to ensure bank deposits, supervise the stock exchange, restrict competition in various industries, and even fix rates for railroad travel. So the last hundred and some years, the first wave of progressives I truly consider around Woodrow Wilson, it it really started building late, probably mid-1890s. So I call the first wave of progressivism, it's really about 1895 to 1920. And then you had a little interlude, and then you had FDR, kind of the second wave of progressivism. And then you had LBJ as the third wave of progressivism. Each one of these took us further and further away from the founders' original intent for this constitutional republic and massively restructured the approach. Again, I, I, I tell people all the time that, that what we're experiencing today and the election of Donald Trump and everything that has taken place, these bogus, fake Russian collusion fairy tales, it's who decides. And it's this underlying tension that was bound to burst into the surface at some point, really been building for over 100 years. You cannot have two competing governing philosophies of an administrative state and a constitutional republic in the same country. And we've kind of lived in this uneasy tension and where we've kind of lived with a fiction right? It's an illusion that somehow we still have a constitutional republic when in fact we have an administrative state that's been dropped inside of our constitutional republic. They're like oil and water. They're they're two massively different governing philosophies. At some point, this was going to break out into the open. So Donald Trump shows up, says, I'm the duly elected president by the will of the people, by the means laid out by the constitution. And the administrative state actors in DC said, we don't think so. We think we're the ones that decide. And so I tell people, if you if you were to take it down and boil it down to one issue of everything that's taken place, it's about who decides. And in a constitutional republic, the duly elected president gets to set domestic and foreign policy inside of his administration and the administrative state actors because they've been given so much power, because it's now over 430 departments, agencies, and sub-agencies, massive amounts of power and clout that, no, we decide. So that's the tension. And that's what's been going on in the last few years. So how do we get back? I mean, I lay it out in the last chapter of how do we try to get back to at least some of the original intent of the founding fathers. So I lay some of those things out. So I would encourage you, again, I just tried to do this episode to give you a little bit of a taste for the book, Restoring Our Republic. I hope that you'll read it. I hope that you guys, if you don't read it, that soon the audio version will come out. Because I truly do believe if you can understand on some level, and I would hope they would be the primer that would lead you to further investigation, further reading, further understanding and appreciation of what we actually have, that as your knowledge and understanding and appreciation grows for what we have, 
that will instill in you an even greater desire to fight for what we have. Because if it's lost, it might be a long time before we can ever get it back, if ever.